0: Leviticus 14, we'll read the first 20 verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper... Then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. The one to be cleansed shall then wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe in water and be clean. Now afterward, he may enter the camp But he shall stay outside his tent for seven days. It will be on the seventh day that he shall shave off all his hair. He shall shave his head and his beard and his eyebrows, even all his hair. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and be clean. Now on the eighth day he is to take two male lambs without defect and a yearling ewe lamb without defect and three tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. And the priest who pronounces him clean, shall present the man to be cleansed, and the aforesaid before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Then the priest shall take the one male lamb and bring it for a guilt offering with the log of oil, and present them as a wave offering before the Lord. Next he shall slaughter the male lamb in the place where the slaughter in the place where they slaughter the sin offering. And the burnt offering at the place of the sanctuary for the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest shall then take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. The priest shall also take some of the log of oil and pour it into his left palm, The priest shall then dip his right finger into the oil that is in his left palm and with his finger sprinkle some of the oil seven times before the Lord. Of the remaining oil which is in his palm, the priest shall put some on the right earlobe of the one to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on the blood of the guilt offering, while the rest of the oil that is in the priest's palm he shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord. The priest shall next offer the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Then afterward, he shall slaughter the burnt offering. The priest shall offer up the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he'll be clean. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Another evening to gather together with your people around your word before your face. God, we're grateful that you invite us into your presence and that you have made the way possible for us to come through Christ. God, we come with empty hands and we don't claim any other ground to stand on except upon Christ. But God, we thank you that you've given us such a mediator. We thank you for his atonement. We thank you, Father, that it does remove the guilt of our sin as well as the pollution of our sin. And God, as we look tonight again at this sacrifice and how Christ washes us from our sin and cleanses us with his blood, I pray, God, you'd stir our hearts to worship. God, help us to see and to love him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well tonight we're looking at the third of four purposes or ends for which Christ came or to put it in the language of Philippians 2 the purposes for which he humbled himself. The first one was that his blood rescues us from the wrath to come and we saw this prefigured in the Old Testament by the blood applied to the doorpost of the the Israelites while they were still in Egypt and as the Uh, Lord passed over the land, killing the firstborn in each house. He saw the blood on the house of the Israelites and he passed over those homes and they were rescued from wrath by the blood. And in a like manner, God passes over us when we have been washed by the blood of the lamb. The wrath that comes at judgment. Judgment. And the wrath that's always coming, because it's a perpetual wrath. There's a sense in which it's always the wrath to come. That wrath put aside in Christ Jesus. Second, His blood atones toward God for us, thus appeasing God's wrath. So not just hiding it, or you know, the example we use Sunday, you know, picking us up and kind of running with us while wrath pursues after us but actually dealing with it so that God's wrath is appeased because justice has been served and there's no more anger. And that makes us acceptable to God so that we're reconciled. God's wrath doesn't just pass over sin as if you can't see that it's really there because it's covered up by the blood. And if he ever really sees it and figures out that the sin's still under there, then we're in trouble. No, wrath has been dealt with and put away completely and finally by atonement. We saw this pictured in many of the Old Testament sacrifices or offerings, but a couple of verses from Leviticus chapter 4, verse 35, "...the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar, on the offerings by fire to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he'll be forgiven." Sin's atoned for, he's forgiven. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This offering will be offered at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So atonement occurs and not only is he forgiven, but because atonement has occurred, he's also accepted. So God's wrath has been effectively or effectually dealt with by the substitutionary atonement of his son. His wrath has been spent upon Christ so that the law is satisfied and guilt is removed. The law that we broke, that stirred wrath, was an overwhelming barrier that existed between us and God and there was nothing that we could do to remove it. But God himself has provided the atonement that removes the barrier so that we are reconciled. He is reconciled to us. Um a great hymn that goes along with that that theme. Hymn 507. 507. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for this our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly speak for me. Forgiven, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let the ransomed sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And father, Abba, father, cry. So his blood atones toward God for us, appeasing God's wrath and reconciling us or making us acceptable to God. The third, his blood washes away our sin and its uncleanness. Some time ago now, before we got into Philippians, we looked at some of the first chapters of Leviticus and the offerings that were there. And we noted then that Sin not only brings about guilt, but it also brings about defilement or pollution. It makes us not only guilty, so that David prays in Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. But sin is also a pollutant. It defiles, it makes unclean And so we also hear David praying in Psalm 51, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, the Lord calls to us through Isaiah and says, Come now and let us reason, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Our sins pollute and we need to be cleansed from that pollution. We see this in the Old Testament through the uh the ceremonial cleanness or the ritual purity that was required of the Israelites and to get your mind perhaps around that one thing that you need to keep in mind is the fact that holiness deals with separation god is holy he's holy from his creation he's separate from his creation he's not created he's the creator and He is completely other, wholly other. But he's also separated from moral sin. Completely separated. He's completely holy because there's no sense in which he is sinful in thought or word or deed. None. And when he calls us to be a holy people, he calls us to be a separated people. Separated from The world separated from sin, separated to him. In the Old Testament, this ceremonial cleanness, which is different than moral cleanness. So we have the moral law, like the Ten Commandments. Don't kill, don't steal, worship only the Lord. But then you also had a ceremonial law, which covered all kinds of things, what you could eat what you could wear. Touching dead things. Covered all aspects of life, many aspects of life. Um, And this ceremonial cleanness that was required in the Old Testament was given to demonstrate the level of holiness or separateness that was required if man was ever to fellowship with the Holy God. And there were things that you could do purposefully that would make you unclean so for instance you could eat fish that had scales and fins but you couldn't eat fish that didn't have scales and fins can you think of a fish that we like that doesn't have scales catfish you couldn't eat catfish well if you I don't know if they had catfish in Israel but if you ate a catfish you were unclean but there were other things that just happened that you didn't purposefully go and do that made you unclean you could inadvertently touch something that a dead person had just touched or a dead animal fell on and they moved it and you didn't know it or you could walk across a grave inadvertently and you're unclean so you weren't looking for it, it just happened you could contract leprosy, you didn't want that but you got it and now you're unclean there were certainly bodily functions that just happen and you're unclean, so wasn't you know purposefully going and breaking the moral law? These are ceremonial laws that demonstrate how separate, how clean you need to be to have fellowship with the Holy God. These things were to be avoided because they pictured sin and the result of sin, which is uncleanness. Sin does produce. Not a ceremonial uncleanness, but a spiritual and moral uncleanness. So that Isaiah can say in chapter 6 and verse 5, when he sees the Lord, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's not just talking about his mouth needs to be wiped, he's, He's a sinner, but God comes and purges his lips, cleans him. Well, this ceremonial uncleanness prevented a person from gathering with the body for worship at the tabernacle, later the temple. Uh, Certain uncleannesses could separate you from the camp so that you had to go outside the camp until you were clean. One of those examples is in Leviticus chapter 14 that we read a moment ago. Chapter thirteen, or maybe before that, no. Chapter thirteen gives test for leprosy, and I'll let you read that. I'm going to read all that right now. But both for a person, for your house, uh, for other things, certain kinds of molds made your house unclean, and it was, it was termed leprosy. And so, if if those things occurred, we'll just deal with people. If you got leprosy and you went to the priest to be examined by the priest, and he said, yes, it looks like leprosy, then you had to separate yourself pretty much from society. You couldn't live inside the camp. You couldn't gather with the people of God to worship. Um, You covered your face. You cried out unclean when you saw other people to warn them to stay away from you because if they touched you, they became unclean. And so there's a moral, uh, a social stigma as well as the Implications that went with it of you being cut off from your people, pretty much. If, however, you got better. So, what we're looking at in Leviticus 14 isn't how to get better from leprosy, it's if you get better from leprosy or you think you're better, then you can go and present yourself to the priest again. And as he looks at you, if he says, Yes, I think you're better, I I think you're healed. You're still unclean until you go through this ritual that the Lord directs you to go through. And so in the ritual, there are these two birds that were taken. and In verse 7, he takes one of the, the live bird and dips it in the blood of the dead bird. That was verse 6. Verse 7, he shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is being to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. So he is pronounced clean down in verses 18, 19, and 20. It speaks of this, uh, the, the offerings that are brought. And uh, the priest offers, by way of this person who's come, to make atonement. And in verse 20, "...the priest shall offer up the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he'll be clean." So, guilt is put away, he's forgiven, he's accepted, and here he's clean. One other place, as uh, a quick example regarding cleanliness in this cleanliness code, in Numbers chapter 19, we're given the prescription for dealing with touching. A dead body or being in contact with the things that were in contact with a dead body now we're told that that's unclean back in Leviticus but now in Numbers chapter 19 this ritual is described to us that we really haven't seen before can you think of anything that happens between Leviticus and, and the giving of the law earlier and Leviticus 19 that might necessitate God giving some more instruction about what to do when you're around a bunch of dead people well 40 years of wilderness wandering. What happens during those 40 years? The older generation dies. And so day after day, they're surrounded by death. And so God gives them instructions. Here's how you deal with all this death around you that's constantly making people ritually unclean. And he tells them to take a red heifer without blemish. The heifer is basically sacrificed and burnt and the ashes are collected And the ashes are mixed with water, and you would bathe in that water. And that was part of the ritual that made you clean if you touched a dead person. The book of Hebrews mentions that when it talks about how the blood of bulls and goats or the ashes of a red heifer might cleanse your skin, but it doesn't cleanse your conscience. But the blood of Christ does actually cleanse the conscience. Well, the picture then that we see in Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19 and in other places is this. Sin not only makes you guilty, which incurs wrath, but sin also pollutes, which makes you defiled. You need a sacrifice to atone, dealing with wrath, putting away guilt, and cleansing you from defilement. None of the Old Testament sacrifices actually did that. All of them put together... Didn't actually do that. But Jesus does that. These Old Testament pictures regarding cleanliness portrayed the polluted result of our sinfulness. But there wasn't anything inherently sinful in those things, or most of those things. There's nothing inherently sinful in eating catfish or in touching a corpse. Or wearing garments made of mixed fabric or contracting leprosy. We see something of this in Acts chapter 10. When Peter has a dream and this sheet comes down and spreads out with all these kinds of unclean foods on it. And the voice tells him to eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. These ceremonial aspects of the law, the cleanliness and uncleanness, that is done away with. We don't need that picture anymore, any more than we need the ashes of a red heifer anymore because we have Christ who actually does clean us up from the pollution of our sins. So the picture isn't needed for the offering. The picture or the type isn't needed for the sin. So we don't gather the ashes of a red heifer, although some people I think are still trying to figure that one out. And we don't concern ourselves with whether an animal that has a split hoof chews the cut or not. The ritual for the cleansing of the leper and the ritual for the cleansing of the person who touched a corpse could only really clean a person to the degree that the water used in the ritual could remove the dirt from the skin. There was nothing magical about it. But Jesus Christ washes us from our sins. Revelation chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 The apostle John as he opens this Revelation says in verse 5, we'll start with verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse five is one of those places in scripture where there's a question about the text. It matters in the sense that we want to know what the text says, but as in so many of these places, it doesn't matter in the sense that the result tends to be the same, no matter which way you read it. I'm reading the New American Standard and most modern translations say something like it. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. The King James and the New King James, which follows it, says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So he washes us from our sins or he released us from our sins. In Greek, the difference is one letter. The word... Luo, L-U-O, is the word for loose or set free or release, L-U-O, but L-O-U-O is the word for bathe or wash, so an extra O, or the absence of that extra O. The result, in the end, you know, you're released from your sin or you're washed so that you're released from your sin, if you bathe. And you're dirty, the dirt is released, it's removed. And so the end result is the same. In this instance, I do prefer the reading of the New King James because I think it preserves the picture that we have in the Old Testament. It presents the means as well as the result. He washed us from our sins in His own blood. And this, the end of verse 5 to verse 6 It kind of turns into a doxology that Jesus Christ is surely a song that every Christian should raise their voice to and sing. To him who loves us and washed us or released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's take this idea of being washed in the blood and considered under a few things. First, the means of this washing, it is the blood of Jesus. I'm thinking now of another song that many of you will be familiar with. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away the guilt, not just the guilt, but the defilement of your sin? Nothing. But the blood of Jesus. Tears cannot do it. No matter how many you shed. Esau shed many tears. And did not find repentance. Tears won't do it. The blood of animals obviously could not do it. The fires of hell will not do it. Heat purges many things. But it doesn't purge sin. If it did then hell would not be eternal. But however hot it is, it's not hot enough to do that. And so it is eternal. Nothing removes the pollution of sin except the blood of Christ. So the means of this washing. Second, the result of this washing. Verse 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He washes us. The blood of Jesus does so much more than just removing dirt like the water would do. It's so much better than anything that the Old Testament sacrifices could do, or even the ashes of the red heifer. I mentioned Hebrews 9 earlier, verses 11 through 14 say, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. The people in the Old Testament. As they brought the sacrifices. That God himself required. Brought them again and again. Understanding that they didn't actually remove sin. They looked forward to the day that they would. And so I think there's a sense in which. Their consciences are not cleansed. Even as they bring those things. Knowing that that still abides on them. Until Christ comes. So. Goats. Calves. Calves. Heifers didn't cleanse the conscience but the blood of Christ does because he actually puts away sin he actually cleanses you so that it's done and removed you know surely what it is to have a guilty conscience you do something and perhaps no one knows but you and God and instead of dealing with the sin you you cover it and pretend like it's not there but your conscience eats at you. Or maybe you're caught and you promise, I'll never do that again. And yet you keep doing it and you live a lie and your conscience eats at you. As sinners, we've all experienced something like that. We've done wrong. We, we have had our consciences call out to us and, and bothered, not giving us rest. But do you know what it is to have a clean conscience? Every person who belongs to Jesus should. Because your sin has been dealt with. It's been put away. The guilt has been removed. The pollution has been removed. It's been put away by the blood of Christ. Third, the motive of this washing. Why does Jesus provide for this cleansing? Revelation 1.5. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His blood. It's love. We see this expressed in John chapter 17 a little differently, but I think the same idea. In John 17, verse 19, Jesus says as He prays to the Father, And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Sanctified is to be cleansed, to be separated. I'm cleaning them up. And for that purpose, I've sanctified myself. There doesn't mean that he cleaned himself up, but he has separated himself to the task that the father has given him, which is what? The cross. I sanctify myself to go to the cross and endure that so that they will be sanctified. So there's the shedding of his blood for the purpose of cleansing them. And he goes on in verse 20 and says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you father are in me and I in you. And that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me. I've given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. So again, we have the picture of here's Christ setting himself apart for the cross for the purpose of cleaning, cleansing them, sanctifying them. And he prays that they will be one as he and the father are one, that they'll be where he is. They'll enjoy the love that he enjoys as the father loves him. Why does he do this? It's, It's love. I want them to be with me. I want them to see my glory. I'm cleaning them up so that they may be one even as we are one. So the motive is love. And when you think about the love of Christ for His people, and the lengths that He goes to bring them to Himself, we have to consider that in His love, He loves us freely. There's nothing that He sees in us that makes Him love us. There's nothing in us that calls out to Him. not even to pity us enough to do what he does. He loved us while we were yet sinners. And if we were not sinners, he would not need to wash us in his blood. He sees us in our sin. He knows we're sinners. He did not love us because we were obedient or because we were righteous. He saw us in our guilt and in our defilement, yet he loves us. He saw us when our sins were like scarlet when they were like crimson. Those are bright, glaring colors. And our sins are glaring things. It's not as if his eyes are dim and he's trying to see and he can't see us very clearly. No, he sees us. He knows us better than we know ourselves or better than anyone else knows us. He sees our sins and he abhors our sins. But though he saw the sin, he loved us. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 say, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. He loved her. He gave himself for her so that he can sanctify her. Christ saw and loved a thief, the thief on the cross. And he told him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Christ saw and loved the outcast. And because she was forgiven much, she loved much. Christ saw and loved the one who denied him. Peter swore three times, I don't know the man. And after his resurrection, Jesus went and sought Peter out and restored him. Would Christ love a persecutor of his church? Well, he met one on the road to Damascus. And he saved Saul of Tarsus and sent him to the Gentile world to proclaim the gospel in places where the name of Christ had not been preached and to establish churches. You and I have been unworthy of his love, yet he has loved us. Full of sin, sometimes slow to repent, yet he has loved us. He has loved us while we were dead in trespasses and sins, not because we were lovely, but because He is loving. What a wonder it is. He didn't wash us and then love us. He loved us and then He washed us. And He makes us white as snow through His own blood. Consider with me also the humility of His love. Jesus washes us. It's wonderful to think about him creating, the exertion of his power by the word of his might. He speaks and worlds exist. That's mind-boggling, but he's God that seems to fit in that category. To think that he destroys, we can look around us, we can look inside us and see reason. Okay, I get that. And that he could do it, no mystery. If he's powerful enough to create, he's powerful enough to destroy. But that he would stoop down and gird himself and take up a towel and wash the feet of disciples, that's amazing. And can you not kind of feel what Peter felt when he said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet? But he stooped lower than that and he opens his side and his hands and his feet and he pours out his blood to wash you from your sin. The sins that are hateful to him, that he despises the sins that are offensive to him, that he cannot stand. He comes and he does that to wash you and to bring you to himself. It's really remarkable. Here is Christ humbling himself to depths that we can't really comprehend to lift us up. Then there's the proof of his love. It's one thing to talk about love like this, but how can you know that Jesus really does love like this, that he loves to the degree that he expresses, that he loves to the lengths that he expresses, that he really loves his own to the end? How can you know? Well, because he gave himself. The proof is there at the cross. There, God demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself for us. There's the evidence that he loves like this. It's remarkable. Then consider the cost of this love, the cost of this washing. John doesn't tell us right here in Revelation 1. But consider Ephesians 5 again, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her. How? When death, the shedding of his blood. Why? So that he might sanctify her. He means for the church to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And this sanctification or this cleansing is going to result in just that. There's a sense in which this is an ongoing process as long as we live until we reach glorification, until we reach, until we're in the presence of the Lord. But there's also a sense in which there's a definite beginning of that, and the Lord guarantees it himself. The guarantee of it is not that you are going to make yourself without spot or wrinkle. It's not that you, uh, you know, in your ability to put to death sin, it's not even in your ability to keep up to date on the confession of your sin or however you want to say it like that. Really, the guarantee is Christ. He loved you and he gave himself for you to sanctify you, to present you to himself spotless, without wrinkle or any such thing. And his blood will accomplish that because that's why he shed it. Forgive me for saying it again, but I'm going to say it one more time. It is Jesus' blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but not even your blood. Your blood wouldn't do. Not enough. You would just be one more dead person. Your blood or anything else in this fallen world would do. It was His blood. Peter writes, 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold or or anything else in this world that's corruptible. You weren't redeemed with that from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It is precious blood, precious because it's his blood. And one drop of his blood is worth more than all the blood running through all the veins of all of Adam's children. But he doesn't just shed a drop, he dies. Have you ever had your blood sugar tested? They stick your finger. And sometimes they can stick it too deep and you really feel it. I've had I, I stuck not enough. And they grab my finger. And it's like they're trying to milk it. They squeeze and pull and try to get a little drop of blood out. Jesus' death, his shedding of his blood was no pinprick where you have to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze to try to get a drop Hymn 198 says it this way, and we'll close with this hymn. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood, He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Good night.